Great to be with you here today. It feels like summer. It's kind of nice, huh? We're, we're in that mode. Uh, I was coaching a baseball game last night. We're in the playoffs now, and um, unfortunately, we won, so we have another game. Um, the season keeps going on, uh, but, uh, you know, I was thinking out there, it's like, man, again, just how blessed we are to be where we are, and, and even in that, I, I, I joke that, is anyone here who's on my team? Yes, there is someone on a team in this church. So, um, I really wanted to win, but it's, it's great as we, we continue on, but it's so fun to just be in the community, hanging out with so many people, and just, you know, experiencing the joy of everyday life, but also at the same time, I know that under some of that joy that we all are experiencing, you know, the last few years continue to be hard, right? And so uh, we're so glad to have you here with us today, because we believe that we find hope, peace, and meaning in life through Jesus Christ. You with me on that? And so for us, that's what we want to celebrate every time we get together. This is kind of our, our weekly, uh, we call it the locker room, where you kind of get pumped up, charged up, and then we go out and live the life on the field throughout the week. Our faith is not meant for only here. It is meant to be when we walk out of those doors. And so we're so glad to have you with us here today. Um, um, let me just say something really quick before we move on with the service about this. Because, you know, when you talk about uh, an idea of being pro-life, there, there's, there can be a lot of confusion and and so, especially because so much in our world is politicized. Would you agree? <laughs> it's like everything we do is politicized. So when you say pro-life, I know that there can be an instant reaction that people feel. And one of the reactions can be, oh, that means that you're anti-woman. You're anti-woman's health and body and choice and all that. So I thought it was important that I just take a couple minutes to explain what is the why is that a Christian worldview? What is the historic Orthodox Christian worldview? And especially because we know that among millennials and Gen Xers, it's probably more like 70 or 80 percent even of Christians would say they, that they would say pro-choice is okay and uh, pro-life is kind of an outdated view. And so let me just really quickly just give you a couple things on that because I think it's important. First of all, we have to separate the politics from the real core issue here. Because when we start thinking of the politics, it's really, things are so divided, and both sides have used this issue for leverage. On the right and on the left, they, it, they've used this for leverage, and it gets lost on what we're really talking about. Now, the historic Orthodox Christian worldview is based on this concept, and it's called the Imago Dei, or the image of God. And, and I could give you some logical reasons to, to believe this, and uh, I could give you some science. I want to just talk, here's a theological view, really quick. The Imago Dei. We believe that all humans are created in the image of God. And because we are created in the image of God, we have worth and we have value. Would you agree with that? <laughs> so, we agree that we're created in the image of God, and therefore every person is valued and has worth in the eyes of God. Now, in the Roman Empire, in the Roman world, there was this belief that people's value was based on their value they gave or their capacity that they had to prov provide value to the world. So, for example, in the Roman world, it was a common practice to, uh, to allow a baby to die in infanticide if they did not think that baby was viable or useful. Sometimes it was because they had a girl and they said, I'd rather have a boy. So it was a common practice to actually allow babies to die because they didn't have capacity or they weren't valuable in the eyes of whoever was deciding. Now the first, Christian, the first Christians were saying, wait, this doesn't fit with our view of the Imago Dei. In fact, 
those who had any sort of disabilities were less than and could be killed because of their disability. They didn't have capacity that was valued. So the first Christians said, we've got to do something about that. And so they started rescuing and saving these babies. They started taking in those who had disabilities. And they used to started saying, like, all people matter. All people have value. And so there was this radical movement among Christians that said, we believe so much in the value of people, including the value of women who were not valued in the Roman Empire, that you had things like orphanage, orphanages started, adoptions started, foster care. All these kind of things were Christian ideas because of the Imago Dei, the image of God in people. And you can see how you can get into trouble if you start saying that this is about whether this person has capacity or not, or the strong survive, and those who provide value, you can start to see that that is not a very good basis for whether someone should deliver or should die. Because who gets to determine that? So you can see how that got into trouble. So the first Christian said, we're not going that way. So that's the historic Christian worldview based on the Imago Dei in people. So here's some challenges for us. And again, the whole morning's not about this, so I'm going to go quickly. A couple challenges. This. If we're pro-life, which we are, because I believe God is, then that means that we need to be pro-life for the babies that are born as well. It's not just about protecting the unborn babies, but it's about saying, what are we going to do to be pro-life, to support these mothers, to support these babies, to be people who care? We need to care about those who are born. Why do we do, uh, we do tutoring and invest in our community? Because we believe we want to care for those in our community no matter where they're at, no matter what their situation is. Pro-life is about whole, the whole life. It's also about the mothers. It's about mothers who are making this choice. We need to care for them. We need to walk side by side with them. So it's not just about one issue. Um, adoption, foster care, all of those things are pro-life positions, saying we want to care for these kids. We want to care for these families. So one other thing about this that we need to know. So much else, but I want to say this. There are people, even in SECO, statistically, we know that there are people in here who've chosen to have abortions. There's families or some of you maybe sitting out there who've made that choice. The Imago Day is in you too, and you matter to God. And we want you to know that God loves you. He understands the situation you are in. He understands you. He cares about you, wants to offer forgiveness for you. And we are not a church who wants to condemn you and say what you, the decision you made makes you less than. No, the Imago Dei is in you. And whatever led you to that decision, our heart breaks for you, and we love you and will walk with you where you're at. You with me in that, church? So pro-life is the Imago Dei in every person, including we believe that God loves the people who are performing abortions. We're not going to vilify and say they're our enemy. Let's destroy them. Let's bomb clinics. Let's do all that. That is not the Christian response. That's not the Christian response. So it's a bigger worldview. It's a challenging worldview. It's not a popular worldview. And my guess is this year we'll hear about it a little bit. You, you think so? <laughs> and for us, it's how do we love each person where they're at and walk with them in the journey because God's image is in them. That's who we want to be. So before we move on with our service, let's pray and just take a moment 
really, um, and I have to make this statement too, if, if you read the news, you know, there was a, a tragedy in Buffalo, New York um, that came out uh, yesterday afternoon, a, another sh a shooting, and it seems to be uh, racially motivated. And again, that is someone who doesn't understand the Imago Dei. Racism is a part of people not seeing the image of God in others. We're confused as a society right now. And Christians need to stand up and start to reclaim, as the first Christians did in the Roman Empire, what it looks like to have a correct worldview. So let's take a moment and pray. Um, in fact, let's do this. Um, I'm, I'm going to challenge you to take a moment and just pray where you are. Circle up. And um, you don't have to pray with someone else. If you are new and you go, are you kidding me? You just said pray with someone else. Um, if you want, or maybe just in clusters, if someone would just take the charge. And let's just pray for our nation. Well, we're going to jump into our uh, message for today. There is no smooth transition into that, so let's just go right in. Um, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. We're in a series we're calling It's Complicated. And again, what we're talking about, it's a series about relationships. And you can see, even of the things that we've talked about already today, how when you have other people involved, it gets complicated, doesn't it? We all have different worldviews, different backgrounds, perspectives on things. And so relationships, uh, the, most, the closest relationships and your most kind of distant ones, they can be complicated. So that's why we're going through this issue here today. Now, today we're going to talk about probably the most personal uh, of all of these. And we're going to talk a little bit about marriage, dating, and singleness today because it's uh, something that we all uh, can relate to, but Bible, the Bible talks about that. Scripture talks about that often. So, in each of these relationships that we've noticed so far in the book of Colossians, we'll notice this, that it's important to have a healthy view of the Imago Dei, the image of God in others and in each person. For our relationships to be healthy, we have to really understand people and their value in the eyes of God. And, and this was a radical idea. It's a radical Christian idea to say that even those who disagree with me matter to God, and they matter to me. This, is, this was life-changing in the first century, and it is still to this day. So now when we talk about today, let's go into Colossians chapter 3, and uh, we've been setting this up for a few weeks. We're in verse 18 today, verse 18 and 19, and then we're going to bounce around. But start off, and it starts with this. So here's where we are today. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the, in the Lord. I think we'll just camp out on there for about 30 minutes and uh, talk about that. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay, so in the middle of this whole section where the first half of Colossians talked about who we are in Christ, what Jesus has done for us to give us our identity, to give us our security, to, to uh, give us new life and made us into new creations. He starts with that. Then he starts saying, so put on, live in your new self, live as a new person, was the next part of it in the beginning of chapter 3. And that looked like people who are patient and compassionate, living with humility, forgiving one another, bearing with one another. And then he got into these relationships we just touched on last week, wives and husbands and, and children and their parents. And then in the, their context, it was slaves and masters. So let's think of it as bosses and employees or any of the relationships where there's, there's different people at play here. Paul jumps into this one, starts with wives and husbands. Now, and he starts with a verse 
that uh, as we get into this, we look at all these verses. The first thing we need to know and remember from the last couple of weeks is this. Our relationships reflect God's nature to one another. What I mean by that is within the context of our relationships, we can actually demonstrate to one another characteristics of God. And we receive from others the, the characteristics of God. And sometimes by demonstrating those characteristics, we learn something of God. For example, as a parent with kids, I learned something of God's unconditional nature of his love. That God is able to be unconditional love to, to me. I understand that more by having kids of my own. So I reflect that part of God's nature to my kids. And in that, they receive and also I learn. So there's days when I go, oh man, is this what unconditional love looks like? That in my failures, you still love me. And so our relationships give us an opportunity to reflect God's nature to one another. So even in the context of these relationships now that Paul talks about, he says, as you put on your new self in Christ, you get to reflect God to one another. So let's look at, let's jump right into today's relationships. The first one, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. That does not sound like a verse that was written in 2022, does it? I mean, when you hear this, submit to your husbands, are you kidding me? There are people who don't want anything to do with Christianity because of verses like this, because it's like, I'm not going to submit to nobody. Are you kidding me? What's going on? That was what my wife said a little earlier today. No, no submit, that's such a, it feels like a harsh word. It doesn't feel like something that we want to do. So let's un understand that a little bit more. This word in scripture can be to subject yourself to someone. It can be tied to obedience. And in most cases, it is a willfully, willfully handing over of authority to someone else, to willfully hand over authority to someone else. Now, sometimes it's used where God, for example, puts all things in subjection under Christ. So sometimes it, it happens to you where God says, okay, all things are under Christ. I'm going to elevate Christ, and now all things are subject to Christ. But in most cases, there's commands to us to be subject to someone. Here's a verse for you. In uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, Everyone is to be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except God, and those which exist are established by God. So here's one where it's like, oh, we are to be subject to. We're to willfully give authority over to someone else. So that's what we see of this word. Now, let me tell you something about the word in this context. Wives, submit to your husbands. Let's start with what this doesn't mean. Okay. This does not mean all women are subject to all men. Okay. This does not mean that I can walk around like, I'm a man and I'm in church, so all the women are below me. That's how it works. That is not what this means. This is talking about in a marriage relationship, and it's talking about the wives to be willfully go give over this authority to their husband. So this does not mean all men have authority over all women. Okay, let's get that out of our head. Next, this does not mean blind obedience to all commands. This does not mean that I can go home and I can kick off my shoes and, and tell my wife, like, hey, can you start cooking some food and bring me a beer while you're at it? The game is on. Now, there may be days when she does that out of her love for me, but not often. But <laughs> if I were to say, hey, you need to do this because the Bible says you submit to me, 
you are subject to me, so obey my commands, that you get yourself into trouble pretty quickly. And the basis of some, sometimes this can lead to abusive relationships, where you have someone saying, like, I'm in authority, you need to obey. And, it, and you can be very, you can get into that very quickly. So this does not mean blind obedience to all commands. Women, you are not your husband's servant, according to Scripture. Okay? Guys, hate to break it to you. It's not what this says. Okay. Also, this does not mean inequality. This does not mean that since, since women are less than men, once you get married, they're just under the man because the man is superior. Let's be honest. That's not what that means at all. In fact, we know that Jesus himself submitted himself to God the Father. Fully equal in substance, equal in authority, equal in his godness, submitted himself. It was not because he was less than. And so in this, Scripture does not teach that women are less than men at all. In fact, we know from Genesis chapter 1 that God creates mankind in his image, male and female, he created them. Meaning that male and female together give us a picture of the image of God. So, what does that mean? It means that we are all equal, but we believe that we also are different. Okay? We're different. Men and women are different according to Scripture. Now, we're, we don't all fit into some box where all men are the same and all women are the same. But in general, men and women, we know that we're different and that we reflect different characteristics of God to one another. And so we need each other to, to bear the image of God. And we're equal, though we're different. Now, in the Christian world, or theologically speaking, you can have some extremes. There's one extreme, we'll just call it this patriarchy, that is this view that says men are superior in all things. That's on one far end of the spectrum. And they're more valuable than women. On the other side of the theological perspective, there is what um, some would call Christian feminism, which is saying that women are exactly like men in all ways and in all things. And we do actually don't think either one is a healthy worldview. We tend to, as we do on a lot of things, land right in the middle, where we say men and women are absolutely equal in importance, in value, and in what they can contribute to one another and into the world and to the church. We are equal in what we have to offer and in the eyes of God. With me on that? Yet we still are different. We acknowledge that and say we're different. And we're okay with that. And that's not always popular in 2022. We're not allowed to be different. That sounds backwards. But actually, it, I don't know why it has to be. It values each individual. It says we can be different. It's okay. So that is really how worldview of the Bible speaks about that. So, if those things are true, then why does Scripture say, wives, submit to your husbands? Because that still doesn't sound popular, does it? Let me just give you a few thoughts. One, this is ultimately, and I'm speaking first to wives, this is ultimately about your act of worship and your display of trust in God and His authority. It's ultimately about you, not your husband, of saying, I want to trust that what the relationships in my life, I'm willing to hand over this piece of my life to my husband. Again, if we went to that Romans 13, 1, 
Why does God put us governing authorities over us and tell us to be subject to them? It is an act of trust in God and his order for us to say, we'll trust the government. Now, do I always trust the government? Here's the answer. No. <laughs> do all, are all the governing authorities who are over me, are they ones who I voted for? No, they're not all the ones who I voted for. In fact, I don't have a very good voting track record. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> but do I still trust that who's over me, God is ultimately on his throne, regardless of who is the mayor, the governor, my senators, the president, all of those people, do I trust that God is on his throne or is it about me and my vote? And so by submitting to the governing authorities, it teaches me that I ultimately trust God. Ultimately, that's where my trust is. Do I still vote? Yes. Can you, be, can you try to change those things by voting for certain people? Please do. That's your, that's your civic duty. But if you don't get your way, don't say, well, now what? Now it's up to me to find a way. No, trust that God is still on his throne. So when we submit to the government, it actually is us saying, God, we submit to you ultimately. Now, context of marriage, same way. It's a handing over of authority and saying, this is my act of worship and I'm going to trust. Now, another thing about it. This, ladies, is an act of power and not of weakness. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, I have this for you. Paul's writing, it says, have the same attitude in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, as he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Would we say that Christ's act of, of humbling himself and becoming a servant was an act of weakness, or was it born out of strength? And it was an act of strength. Again, why? Because he was fully confident in who he was, fully confident in his value and worth in the eyes of the God the Father, fully confident in, in his role and what he came to fulfill, and his act of submission, becoming a servant of mankind, was not out of weakness, but it was out of strength. So ladies, by handing over authority in your marriage to your husband, that's actually an act of strength. Now here's the question though, what does that mean? What are you handing over? In my marriage, I'll tell you this, this is not that my wife says, Ryan, you make all the decisions, you're in control of everything. I hand it over to you, it's my act of worship. It does not work that way in my house, okay? This is not like I come home on a new motorcycle and go like, hey, look, thanks for handing me authority, look what I got. It just doesn't work that way. Now, a few years ago, I did come home with a new motorcycle. <laughs> but we had talked about it, and my wife said, I think you should get one. We have seven years left on your term life insurance. You need to get one now. Increase <laughs> these odds. No, <laughs> no this, isn't, this isn't her saying you're in charge of everything. It's her saying, I want to learn to trust that God is speaking to you and through you in our marriage. And she is every bit a part of that. I do not walk in our marriage without her. I don't make decisions without her. I don't keep her on the outside saying, no, remember, you're the wife, I'm the husband. Let me tell you guys, that is foolish. Don't do it. It doesn't work. You're going to see in a moment, I also don't think it's godly at all. 
So when we talk about this, there's one thing that I think. So the question really is, well, why does God do it this way? Why didn't he say, husbands, submit to your wives? Could he have done that? Let me tell you this. Could he have set it up that way? The answer is yes. He could have. But through scripture, for some reason, it wasn't. Now, we could make an argument. Paul makes an argument that is order of creation. Could God have created the woman first? Sure, he could have. He didn't. So why is this the order of creation? You could make the argument that in the first century or even before that, that it was because society viewed women as less important and men had a responsibility to lead. Could be the order of creation. I don't know. I don't know why. But I know it's in scripture. So then it's how do we respond to it? What does this mean? One thing, though, that, keeps, that strikes me, and this is what Christian and secular psychologists would agree with, that there's something about this that actually speaks to the nature and characteristic of most men. And again, we'll never generalize. We're all different. But by giving the respect and trust to your husband, it meets a need that's inherent in most men. And that need is this, the need to be trusted and to be respected. And not respected, like, you better respect me, but like, oh, you actually trust me? You trust that God is speaking to me and leading this family? And for most men, that actually speaks to our heartstrings. It's a part of us that sometimes is lacking, and I think the enemy attacks. How many of us guys have struggled with our confidence even in our own relationships? Because we're insecure, we're not sure. Are you going to love me if I do this? Or are you with me? And a woman, uh, uh, the, your wife's ability to say, I trust you. I hand this over to you. I walk with you, and I'm looking to you to be a part of leading this family. Again, your partners. But ultimately, I want you to know I trust you. It speaks to something that's inherent, inherent in most men. So um, wives... Ladies who are dating guys, know that you have a special role in helping us men grow in our belief in God's calling in our lives. I believe for some reason God is calling us to be men of courage. He's calling us to listen to the voice of the Spirit and to walk in confidence. And you have such a valuable role in building that up in us. You have a valuable role of building that up. When my wife says, I just want you to know I trust you, in this. You know what that does to me? Let me just tell you, that's pretty sexy when she says that. <laughs> to think, you trust me? I need that almost more than anything. And when she watches me build something and says, are you sure that's how you do it? That's the opposite. Let me just say that. <laughs> are you sure you're supposed to put that nail there? I'm like, I don't know. I'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> Ladies, you're submit, uh, by submitting, and again, that word feels so harsh. So let's, by handing over authority, let's say that, shows us what a steady confidence in God looks like as well. Because when my wife says, I trust you here, what she's also saying is, I trust God. And that shows me something of her confidence in who God is. You with me on that? Okay, let's just pray and wrap it up. All right, husbands, let's talk about you really quick. Husbands, it says love your wives. 
Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Paul says it this way. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Guys, this is the most difficult verse in all the Bible. It is. Do you know who the church is? It's you and me. It's people. As Christ loved the church, how did Christ love the church? Are there ever days when you and I don't deserve God's love? The answer is yes, just nod and say, oh, yeah. Are there ever times when you think that God would say, like, seriously, forgive you again? <laughs> Are there ever times when we pursue God, or does God pursue us? Are there times when we, we are not seeking him, but he seeks us? See, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Is saying, I'm calling you to the most challenging verse in all the Bible, to love as God loves which means you be willing to pursue. You be willing to have unconditional love. You be willing to say, I'm going to be there for you, when you even when you don't want me to be. And I'm going to give of my life for you. Husbands, what your wives, what scripture says, if they hand authority over to you, that's because they're handing it over to someone who says, I am madly in love with Jesus and I am going to bring that love to you and to my family. And I will be there for you, and I will pursue you. And notice this. Psychologists also would say one of the things that most women, again, generalization, want more than anything is that sense of security and acceptance through love. So once again, Scripture is actually matching up with what the needs in our hearts are by biology and, and science. And again, do we all need acceptance and security? Yes. Do we all want respect and trust? Yes. But this is how God has designed it here, and it makes a ton of sense. So husbands, do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? Or are there days you're like, honey, you just, you need to get your act together. And maybe you don't say that out loud, you just say it in your head. <laughs> you're like, I'm going out with the boys, or I'm going to go hide in the, my man cave. I'm going to just get away for a while. Now, there's times you want to have wisdom, and maybe you need to separate or just get, like, some, some alone time. But ultimately, we need to come back and say, I'm going to love you as Christ loved the church. I'm there for you. It's not a meet me halfway. It's I will go all the way over for you. I'm willing. If you're dating, here's this wonderful opportunity for each of you to practice these things. Now, you're going to practice them in a different measure. You're not married yet. This is the time to test it out, okay? But these are things you can start to practice and understand. And when I was dating my wife, when we talk about marriage and moving and all this, she'd say, what, what do you feel like God's leading us to do? What is God speaking to you? And she would start to hand over some authority. Now, some of it, she'd say, like, yeah, I'm not feeling that. <laughs> I'm not there right now. I'm like, okay. It's cool. And when you're dating, that's a great opportunity. If the man starts saying, you know what? I'm feeling like the Lord's saying, you need to listen and obey me. Ladies, that's called a red flag. If the man says, you know what? I think because I'm in charge, you need to start giving yourself to me a little more physically. Okay? Because that's what I need. You know what? That guy's not listening to Jesus. He's looking to be selfishly filled, and he's not caring about you. He's not loving you like Christ loved the church. Christ would say, I will give up my needs for you. So dating, it's an, it, your relationships are based on your dependence of God. And you will be better for your partner when you grow 
in your security as sons and daughters of God. So if you're dating, focus on growing as sons and daughters of God, and that's the best thing you can give to one another, that confidence, that security. You with me on that? Okay. Single people. I know single people are saying, why am I here today? Listening to all these married people. Let me say a couple things. In the church, there's this temptation to think that once you're married with kids, you have arrived. That is the pinnacle of Christianity, married with kids, right? Because churches have kids ministry, student ministries. We invest money there. We love families. You look around, there's families. And if you are single, you can feel like, I guess I'm not there yet. Maybe you're single, never been married. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe you're widowed. And you think, is there a place for me? Do I have value? And I want you to just start with this and say that you have incredible value, not just to God, but to us as a church. When you were single, I was talking to one of our young adults this week, and one of the things that came up was this. When you are single, you have a perspective on God that married people lose. You have this perspective of understanding and learning what confidence and who God is, and even in his being able to be with you in tough times, good times, all of that, that sometimes once you get married, you start to lean on one another more than you lean on Christ. We need your perspective. We need you to speak into our lives. We need you to remind us what that looks like. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. He says, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned him, just as God has called them. Meaning, where you are right now, even if it's not where you'd hope to be, but where you are is okay. It is good. It is not a bad place. So please don't think, oh, I just have to get married and then I've arrived. And I know sometimes as single people, this is frustrating. I know especially our young adults who are single, it can be frustrating. Uh, One person said that, hey, all I'm looking for is a Christian guy with a pulse. That's it. That's my standard. That's what I'm looking for. And I get it. And I know some of the young adults have said, and I can't even find that. (laughs) Uh, These things are tough. And so sometimes you can feel like where you are is not enough. That's hard. It's hard. But we don't need to pity you as if, oh, poor you. No, you are so important to the church. You are so valuable. We're so blessed to have you with us. Paul also wrote this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. In the same way, an unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way with undivided devotion to the Lord. Hey, there's, about, there's a stage in your life, a singleness, that you won't have in marriage. And, and once you get married, you actually have a season of grieving singleness. You grieve that, that thing you used to have. Now, some of you who are single are like, yeah, I'd rather be married and not grieve singleness. I get it. But where you are, God says, just that's where you are now, and it's good. And you matter to the church. And one last thing on that. Church, it is important that we are family. It is very important that we are a family. That we all see each other as valuable. 
that we love each other, care for each other, and that we don't, even as married people, just say like, well, I'm married, I have all I need. And we ignore the rest of the church around us. We cannot forget about our widows. We cannot forget about our single young adults. We cannot forget about those who maybe are single parents. We cannot. We gotta be together. Okay, one last thing. And I'm gonna, these are gonna be very quick. Talking about relationships, I just wanna give you a few tips that I think are for successful relationships. And these, my wife and I were, this is our 25th year of marriage, so we've been married 25 years. It was super weird to be in junior high and be married, but, um, but you know, after all these years now, we've, we've learned some things, and I felt like, you know, when people are like married for a year and they say, here's some tips for your relationship, it's always kind of like, thanks. But 25 years, we've, we've been through some things, we still have stuff to learn, but here's the things that I feel like we could all learn, and these will work in your dating, these will work in your marriage relationships, and these will work just in your interactions with one another. But here's a few things I think are successful that will help. First one is this. Uh, be the first to forgive or to ask for forgiveness. Be willing to initiate, hey, would you forgive me? That was stupid what I just did. I heard of one couple that it was their own competition that in a fight, they would say, they would try to be the first to say, like, wait, wait, wait you know, would you just forgive me? I'm just, you know, I did this. Be the first to ask for forgiveness. You know what forg asking for forgiveness does? It actually shows that you trust each other. It shows that you feel safe with one another. It shows that the other person's not gonna go like, okay, I'll forgive you. You idiot, you did it again. Score, boom, I got another point. No, by being willing to go first and ask, you're saying, I trust you. I trust you with this. Will you forgive me? Next thing is this, agape each other. This is a Greek word in, in the Bible for love. Agape, this is the word for unconditional love. This means love with no strings attached, no conditions. This is not, hey, I love you so much as long as you fulfill my needs. I love you so much. This is, this is saying, I love you because you're in my life. No strings attached. I, I'm gonna learn to love you when I, when I get what I need from you and when I don't. I'm gonna love you when you're feeling uh, just not in a great mood and when you say, I don't even want you around here. Like, hey, okay, I get it. I still love you. I'm there. Agape one another. Unconditional love with no strings attached. Next one is this. Serve one another. Look for opportunities to serve one another. My wife's homesick today. Did you hear that? Um, I'm just, no, I'm just kidding. Serve one another. Be willing to be there for each other and just find ways to to serve, whatever that might be. If your wife wants a foot rub, just, you know, do the foot rub. Put on some socks. I'll rub your feet. Let's go. <laughs> Is that too much? Too much? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Last one is this. Commit to staying committed. Commit to staying committed. Listen, there are going to be times when you feel like, ah, I can't keep doing this got to commit to being committed. We had friends who, on their wedding ring, on the inside, it says, no way out. <laughs> I used to think that was like, I was like, is that romantic, or what is that? I don't know what that is. <laughs> and then I learned to think, actually, that's super romantic, because what it's saying is, you know, matter, no matter what, there's no way out. I'm committed to being committed. Through health issues, through struggles we might go through, financial issues, through joys, through pain, through job changes, through moving, all of that. I'm committed to you. 
and we're going to stick together. I'm going to invite the worship team to start making their way back up as we end. And again, when we talk about these things, I know what we can bring up is a lot of issues, right? Some of you are in a marriage right now that you are struggling. You are struggling. And we want you to know we don't want you to struggle. There's hope for you. Um, we even have some access to life coaching here. There's counseling, but even like step below that, that could be really helpful. What we would love for you to do is, is to let us know if you want some help. Don't try to fix it without help if you're at that point. If you're at the point where you say, I'm not committed to being committed, talk to us. Let us help you. If this can also bring up some issues for those of you who say, hey, my marriage failed. And you're here, and you feel guilt, and you say, oh, I didn't do any of this. Or maybe I married the wrong person, and, and he was abusive, and it was, just didn't go well. And you're here, and you go, man, Lord, I'm just not, I'm damaged goods. I'm not worth anything anymore. I just want you to know that's not the truth of Scripture. That's not the good news for you. And I know there's pain in those journeys, and we want you to know that you are absolutely, completely loved and cherished by God and by your church. You are valued. You are not wasted who, who you are. Okay. Some of you, again, if you're single and you're, you say, hey, this is just a hard season, we get it, we get it, we get it. And there's a God who wants to walk with you in that, and so do we. So as we end, though, all of this is based on one thing. It's remembering that ultimately, the love that God models for us is the love that we can give to one another. And it's a love that never changes. It's the most secure thing we could ever have. And so we're going to end our time, and let's just sing about that love and be reminded of the one thing, God's love will never leave us where we're at. So would you stand with me as we end our time and uh, sing one last song, and then we'll close it up.